For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I've read again from verse 14 to verse 21 in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And we are considering and uh, resuming our consideration of this uh, prayer that the apostle here offers for these people. A prayer, therefore, that all Christian people always should ever be offering for themselves. And we reach this point at which we are considering the particular <coughs> petition in which he prays that as the result of being strengthened with might by God's Spirit in the inner men and Christ dwelling in the heart by faith and being rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to comprehend with all saints the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. We have, uh, I think, agreed that this is the greatest knowledge that is possible to men. There is nothing higher than this. To know this love of Christ is the acme of human achievement. There is nothing more glorious that can ever happen to a human being than to have this knowledge. And yet, as we've seen, it's a knowledge that is open to all. We are to comprehend it with all saints, not to certain people only. And we have also looked at the description which the Apostle gives us of this love in these dimensions, breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that passeth knowledge. But now we must continue and address ourselves this morning in particular to a consideration of the nature or the character of this knowledge. What, uh, what kind of knowledge is it? It's a most important point that because if we are not clear about this, it will obviously have a very serious effect, not only upon our desire for this knowledge, but upon our efforts and endeavors to obtain the knowledge. And it is because many, as I want to try to show you, have gone astray in their ideas as to the character of the knowledge, that they have never known it and never experienced it. Well, now, the great apostle goes out of his way to help us with regard to this matter because he tells us three things about this, about the character of the knowledge. He uses three terms, and quite clearly he chose them in a very deliberate manner in order that these shades of meaning might become clear to these Ephesians 
and to all who should subsequently read these words. So the first word which we look at is this word, comprehend. That ye may be able to comprehend with all saints the breadth and length and depth and height of this love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now, what is the meaning of this term, to comprehend? Well, this means to take a firm mental grasp of something. Or if you prefer it, it means to lay hold of something with the mind. Now, that is clearly, therefore, a very important thing for us to take hold of. It's a term that is used to describe the process of grasping mentally an idea or a truth so that perhaps a better translation here would have been the word apprehend that ye may apprehend with all saints the breadth and length and depth and height. Now, there are, as you know, different types of knowledge. And it's a very important and interesting question to study the different types of knowledge. I'm not going to detain you with all that this morning, but to indicate, uh, rather, that this which we are looking at now is what is described as conceptual knowledge, a knowledge of concepts and of ideas. Now, that's a very distinct compartment of knowledge. There is a kind of instinctive, intuitive knowledge uh, possible, but there is this other kind of knowledge where a concept, an idea, a thought is held before us and we are able to grasp it, to lay hold upon it, uh, to possess it, and it becomes ours. Now, it will be obvious at once that this conceptual uh, kind and type of knowledge is uh, the knowledge with which we are engaged uh, when we are students of any subject. And when we try to learn something about its first principles and its governing laws and what it has to tell us. Uh, so that any form of study is really concerned with this conceptual kind of knowledge. And you notice that the emphasis is all along upon the fact that it is a mental process. It is something that is done with the mind. So the apostle is praying here primarily for these Ephesians that they may lay hold on this love of Christ with their minds. Now then at once we are confronted, are we not, by what appears to be a contradiction. Not only a contradiction in what I've been trying to say on previous Sunday mornings, but a contradiction in what the Apostle himself has been saying. I've been at great pains to emphasize what he clearly is emphasizing, that when you come to the realm of love, that you don't rely upon the intellect, that is why we spend two Sunday mornings in emphasizing being rooted and grounded in love. 
That's the way we said to arrive at this knowledge of the love of Christ. You don't approach love with your mind, with your intellect, I emphasized. No, you must be established and rooted and grounded in love. It is love alone that can comprehend mind, uh, comprehend love. And yet I now am emphasizing the fact that the apostle has deliberately chosen a word which brings out the mental aspect of this knowledge of the love of Christ. Is there, therefore, a contradiction? And the answer is, of course, that there is no contradiction. Therefore, it is important that we should get this clearly in our understanding. When the apostle says that he wants these Ephesians to apprehend, lay hold mentally of the love of Christ, he is not saying that this is a purely intellectual process. That he's already made perfectly clear. That there is a mental element in it doesn't mean that it is purely intellectual. So he's not going back on his own case and saying, now I want you with your minds, naked minds alone, uh, to lay hold on this love. No, it isn't that. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means this. It means that there is always in love an intellectual element. And that intellectual apprehension is always a very essential part of love. Now, there is no doubt at all but that our main difficulty in these matters is that our whole notion of love is uh, seriously defective. We uh, tend to regard love in a kind of sentimental manner, as if it was something purely emotional. Indeed, the common conception of love today that is obviously current in the world is purely irrational. It isn't love at all, of course. There's all the difference in the world between infatuation and love. Infatuation is without reason. There's no intellectual element in that. But there is always a real intellectual element in love. Love has understanding. Love can give reasons for itself. Love is not unintelligent. It's not unintellectual. There is this very definite intellectual element in love. Now, that's the thing that the apostle is talking about. So that, you see, he is not saying that this love is to be apprehended by a pure act of the intellect. Oh, no. But he is saying that there is an intellectual element in love and that we must never ignore it. Now, let me give you a quotation from uh, this same apostle elsewhere to elucidate this point. You will find that in his epistle to the Philippians, the next epistle that follows in the New Testament, in the first chapter he is offering a prayer for the Philippian church. And this is what he says in the ninth verse. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now you notice, it is their love, he is praying, that their love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment and in a sense of discrimination. 
The ability to approve things that are excellent. The ability to differentiate between things that differ. Now that's a very good statement of it. Love, therefore, must never be thought of as used in the New Testament. As just something intuitive or instinctive, as something purely emotional, as something which is irrational. That's not love. Now, again, I say we might very well digress at this point, but I must refrain from doing so. There are two words which are used to describe love. Eros and this other big word, this agape. Now, there, the apostle is not here talking about what we may describe as erotic love. That's purely of the flesh, that's purely animal, that's carnal. But oh, how that is being regarded as love today. Your newspapers are full of it. It's the whole trouble with the modern world, this sex-ridden generation in which we live. It's debasing the great language of humanity. And there is nothing more tragic in the world at this present hour than the way in which this pleasure and sex mania are debasing the currency of thought as, as, as well as leading to such uh, tragedies in the lives of men and women. Well, now then, we are delivered from all that, I say, if we realize that the apostle here is emphasizing by his word comprehend or apprehend that there is this tremendous element of understanding in love. In other words, love uh, is something that can be contemplated and indeed, I can go on to say this, that love contemplates. In other words, if love doesn't make you think, it isn't love, it's this other thing, this debased thing. Love always thinks. Love enjoys ruminating, dwelling upon, looking at and dissecting and analyzing and considering. Now, that's an intellectual process. That is, you see, this conceptual element and this conceptual aspect of love. So what the apostle is virtually saying at this point and at this stage I can put in this form. He says I want you together with all saints everywhere to begin to study the love of Christ. You can study love and the more you study it the more you love it. Haven't you found that even with secular subjects? We use the phrase again very loosely and wrongly in a sense. We say you know I'm getting to love this subject. Of course. That's all right in, if you understand what you mean by the, by the term and don't use it in too technical a manner. But it means this, that the result of your apprehension and your laying hold of the concepts is that it produces this reaction. So the apostle says that uh, the first characteristic of this love is that we uh, lay hold of it with the mind. And that is why, you see, last Sunday we looked at in detail what the scriptures tell us about the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. Now then, with our minds we are to dwell upon that and to take it in and to talk to ourselves about it and to address ourselves concerning it. You don't, don't just wait to have a feeling. No, no, you go through your scriptures and you see this manifestation of the love of God objectively there externally in the scriptures and you apply your mind to it and as you do so, you will find your love to Christ increasing. 
Now that's the thing that this word brings out. You don't just go into a passive state and hope that some great feeling will suddenly possess you. But you deliberately apply your mind to it. And you get hold of the concept. And you get a spiritual understanding of the love of Christ. Let me therefore sum up this particular statement by asking a question. How often do we meditate upon the love of Christ? That's what this word is telling us to do. We must meditate upon it. Take Isaac Watts' great word. When I survey the wondrous cross. How often do you do that? We've often climbed up hills and mountains, haven't we? To survey a wonderful landscape. We're staying in an area and somebody says, oh, there's a marvelous view. But you know, it'll mean you're climbing up for perhaps an hour or two. You'll have to climb up that mountain. But once you get there, there's a marvelous view. And you stand and you have this glorious panorama ahead of you. And you can look at it and dwell upon it and drink it in. Yes, but you see, you've got to make the effort. You've got to climb the mountain. That's what the apostle is saying here. Apply your minds. Scale the heights. Go and have a look at it when I survey the wondrous cross. It takes time, but it's worth looking at. And you spend your time in meditating upon the love of Christ and the love of God. That's an, a mental activity. Comprehend. Conceptual. But that's only his first word. He goes on to a second word. That ye may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now he's got a different word. And it's not only different but it's in many ways a greater word and a stronger word. This is no longer conceptual knowledge. What is this? Well, this is knowledge which is gained by experience. Or knowledge, if you prefer it, which is grounded in personal experience. I no longer use the term conceptual. I now use the word experimental. Or if you prefer it, experiential. Now, this isn't my theory. This isn't my idea. You consult the lexicons. You turn up these words for yourselves. And you'll find that all the authorities are agreed in saying what I'm now putting to you. That is the difference between apprehending and knowing. This word knowing, and you know, it's an important point to bear this in mind as you read the scriptures. This is always personal and experimental. And not merely experimental, and not merely conceptual. So I would put it like this to you. This describes direct knowledge. This uh, describes immediate knowledge. This is not the result of contemplation and of meditation. It's not immediate. It is immediate. It's direct. It's a knowledge, I say, in the realm of experience. 
Now, it's very interesting to notice the order in which the Apostle puts these two words. There is no doubt at all that conceptual knowledge should always come first, and it does come first. But it should lead on to this. Here we are looking not primarily at an activity of the mind or of the understanding. Here we are looking at something which has got more of a passive element in it. Here we are describing something which is not so much an account of an activity on your part and mine as the result of our awareness of something that is happening to us, something that is taking place within us. We are now not looking at the love of Christ externally with a sense of wonder and of amazement. We are now experiencing it. We are now being bathed in it and enveloped by it. We are now being ravished by it and filled with it. Now I take it that we are all clear about this distinction. This is the word in which he describes our awareness of the fact that Christ loves us. He is making it plain to us. He is making it clear to us. He personally is telling us personally that he loves us and the greatness of his love to us. That's what this word means. Now you notice the striking difference here. No man who has any spiritual understanding at all can possibly read the New Testament without knowing that Christ obviously loves every Christian. None of us would be Christian at all were it not that Christ had loved us and had given himself for us. That is the message of the gospel to us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. In the first place it means this. That if I do accept this teaching that Christ has taken my sins upon him and has borne my punishment, well then it's obvious that he did so because he loved me. It is a proof of his love. Now, I look at that as it's stated in the scriptures. I'm aware of it and I believe it, I accept it, I rest upon it. But you see, there is a sense in which still it's all outside me. I believe the concept. I rest upon the concept. How different that is from Christ himself telling me that he loves me. Making it plain and clear to me in an intimate, direct and experimental sense. Now, we are forced to use analogies of necessity. You can be aware of another's love to you by the actions of that person and so on and so forth. But what love craves for always is a personal statement. Love always wants a personal word. It's not content with the general manifestations. It longs, it craves for that immediate, direct, that 
personal statement and manifestation. And what the apostle is teaching here is just that. That it is possible for Christian people to know the love of Christ in that personal, immediate, direct, experimental, experiential way. Over and above the conceptual knowledge is this experimental knowledge. Now then, this is clearly something that is of very vital importance for us. The apostle says that he's bowing his knees before God the Father and praying incessantly that these Ephesians may have this. He knows they're already believers. He's reminded them of that. They've been sealed with the Spirit And there are many other things that he's told them that are true of them. But he feels that they don't know this love in this way. Not only are they lacking in their conceptual understanding of it, they they don't know it as he knew it. And his prayer is that they may come to know it in that way. Then his third term is, of course, this passeth knowledge, the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Again, we must be clear as to the meaning of this particular term. It means surpassing knowledge. I remember a man once saying of how he heard a quaint Negro preacher in one of the southern states of America expounding this. And I I agree that what the Negro preacher said was very picturesque and in a sense true and yet in another sense, as we've already seen, very wrong. He was dealing with the statement of the Apostle in Philippians 4 about the peace of God that passeth all understanding. What it means is this, said the Negro preacher, that it bypasses the mind and goes straight to the heart. Well, he wasn't right, of course, but there was a sense as we've seen in which he was right also, where he was wrong in saying that it had nothing at all to do with the mind. It passes by the mind, he says, it bypasses it. It doesn't, it includes it. But what the apostle is saying here is this, that it surpasses it. Not bypasses, but surpasses. It transcends it. It excels it. A good way of translating this is this, the knowledge-surpassing love of Christ. In other words, it surely means something like this. That though you may come to know it, you still only know something of it. It's like a never-ebbing sea. It is inexhaustible. It is unsearchable. It's always much bigger than you think it is. You get more and more of it, and yet you're only starting with it. It's, it's, of course, a point at which language uh, fails us completely. You have this uh, oxymoron, as we saw last Sunday morning. But it's got to be put in this way, in order that we may ever, with the great apostle, realize that however much we've got, there is always so much more, so we forget that which is behind, and we press onwards and forwards, and we're always experimenting, as it were, and always making fresh discoveries. It's a knowledge-surpassing love this love of Christ. Well, now there we've looked at the terms. And I think we've reached a point, a stage at which 
we must ask a question. Is this knowledge which we have been describing really possible for us all as Christians here and now in this life and in this present world? Or is this one of these hyperboles which writers sometimes indulge in? Is this just a poet whose mind has suddenly become inflamed by an idea? Well, of course, it's... uh, Not only insulting to the great apostle, it's to deny the scripture, to suggest something like that. And yet, uh, it's not surprising that people ask that sort of question, because, you see, the question we ask is this, uh, what do we know about this kind of thing? But the apostle here, if we had no statement about this, it's more than enough. He prays that the members of the church at Ephesus, every one of them, and all saints everywhere else, may come to have this knowledge of the love of Christ, the conceptual and the experimental. It is possible in this life and in this world. Now, but let me give you some other scriptures. Take what the Apostle Peter says in writing to a number of Christian people whom he didn't know. There were strangers scattered abroad. And he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says in the first epistle, first chapter, verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's it. Then I can take you to what we are told about the manifestations of the Son of God to those who truly know him. You'll find it in that great 14th chapter of John's Gospel, which must ever be kept as the background in our minds to this prayer which we are now considering. Our Lord there, you remember, says this, that he's going to send the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come unto you. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me because I live, ye shall see me, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. He is already loving him, but he's loving him now in this more intense way. And will manifest myself to him. He's going to manifest himself to the man who already believes in him. That's this. This is the manifestation of his love. And he goes on to talk about the abiding, you remember. But then in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel in verse 23, there is a statement which is even more astonishing. He's praying to his father, and this is the prayer. The glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That's it. Not this conceptual knowledge of the love of God, but an immediate, direct knowledge of God's love to us as he loved his son, he loves us. We are to have that knowledge. But says someone, if there it is in the scripture and I accept it, has this been verified in subsequent experiences 
in the history of God's people, in the long story of the Christian church? Well, it has, and abundantly. I could literally keep you for hours in quoting testimonies to you uh, to this very thing. You get it, of course, in all centuries, in all places, amongst all types and kinds of people. This has been an experience not only of the apostles and some outstanding saints, but some of the most humble people, unknown people. They've rejoiced in this same dual knowledge of the love of Christ. Let me give you one from a hymn, which alas is not in our hymn book. Listen to a man saying something like this. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full, this perfect peace, oh, this transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. His forever only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade away, firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. Now, no one can write words like that without their being true. It would be the height of folly to do so otherwise. Indeed, it would be blasphemy. But there is a person who can say, Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine in a love which cannot cease. And you notice that other statement, Ah, with what a rest of bliss, Christ can fill the loving heart. That is experimental knowledge. But there are many others that I could quote to you. Listen to another Christian offering this prayer. Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus. Oh, how passing sweet thy words, breathing o'er my troubled spirit peace, which never earth affords, all the world's distracting vices, all its enticing tones of ill, at thine accents mild melodious are subdued, and all is still. Now that was written by a man called William Williams. And he knew what it was to hear his speech. Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus. He'd been a Christian for years. And then he'd had this knowledge. And then he'd lost it. And he wanted it back. And having once heard it, he wanted to hear it again. Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus. Oh, how passing sweet thy words. Can we appropriate this language? That's the question.
Listen to Charles Wesley saying it. Jesus, lover of my soul. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. That's it. But let me give you some other experiences and statements in prose. Here are some words written by a man who was a man by temperament and by nature very morbid and introspective. He'd been a Christian for 28 years. He was a teacher, a professor of philosophy. Not what you would describe as one of those superficial people who can be carried away emotionally. A man whose business was to analyze and dissect and to live in the realm of concepts and, as I say, naturally morbid and introspective and utterly skeptical. But you see, he came to know this love in this experimental sense, and this is how he describes it. Almost every week and sometimes every day, the pressure of his great love comes down upon my heart in such measure as to make my brain throb and my whole being, soul, and body groan beneath the strain of the almost insupportable plethora of joy. And yet amid this fullness there is a hunger for more. And amid the consuming flame of love, the paradoxical cry is ever on my lips, Burn, burn, O love within my heart, burn fiercely night and day, till all the dross of earthly loves is burned and burned away. There it is, after 28 years in the Christian life. Then listen to him again. He says, the heavenly tenant of my soul has changed all this. He has unlocked every apartment of my being and filled and flooded them all with the light of his radiant presence. The vacuum has become a plenum. The spot before untouched has been reached, and all its flintiness has melted in the presence of that universal solvent, love divine, all loves excelling. I now wish that I had a thousand heart power to love and a thousand tongue capacity to proclaim Jesus, the one altogether lovely, the complete Savior, who is able also to save to the uttermost them who come to God by him. There it is, you see. And let me give you just one more. Here I'm going to quote to you from the life of an amazing and saintly man of the name of Edward Payson, who lived in the United States of America at the beginning of the last century. Here was a man, to use the phraseology, who was a great Calvinist in his theology and in his doctrine, unlike the last man whom I quoted who wasn't. But here is a man again who had been a Christian for a number of years and had exercised a great ministry and had been used and had been blessed of God. But this is how he writes and how he puts it. He writes to a clergyman. Oh, he says, if ministers only saw the inconceivable glory that is before them, and the preciousness of Christ, they would not be able to refrain from going about, leaping and clapping their hands for joy, and exclaiming, I'm a minister of Christ, 
I'm a minister of Christ. When I read Bunyan's description of the land of Beulah, where the sun shines and the birds sing day and night, I used to doubt whether there were such a place. But now my own experience has convinced me of it. And it infinitely transcends all my previous conceptions. Here he is again writing to his sister. Were I to adopt the figurative language of Bunyan, I might date this letter from the land of Beulah, of which I have been for some weeks a happy inhabitant. The celestial city is full to my view. Its glories beam upon me, its breezes fan me, its odors are wafted to me, its sounds strike upon my ears, and its spirit is breathed into my heart. Nothing separates me from it but the river of death, which now appears but as an insignificant rill that may be crossed at a single step. Whenever God shall give me permission, the Son of Righteousness has been gradually drawing nearer and nearer, appearing larger and brighter as he approached. And now he fills the whole hemisphere, pouring forth a flood of glory in which I seem to float like an insect in the beams of the sun, exulting yet almost trembling, while I gaze on this excessive brightness and wondering with unutterable wonder why God should deign thus to shine upon a sinful worm. A single heart and a single tongue seem altogether inadequate to my wants. I want a whole heart for every separate emotion and a whole tongue to express that emotion. And finally, Christians, he says, might avoid much trouble and inconvenience if they would only believe what they profess, that God is able to make them happy without anything else. They imagine that if such a dear friend were to die or such and such blessings to be removed, they would be miserable, whereas God can make them a thousand times happier without them. To mention my own case, God has been depriving me of one blessing after another. He was on his deathbed when he wrote this. But as each one was removed, he has come in and filled up its place. And now when I am a cripple and not able to move, I am happier than ever I was in my life before or ever expected to be. And if I had believed this twenty years ago, I might have been spared much anxiety. Well, there, my dear friends, I leave you. We have looked at the Apostles' Prayer. We are to apprehend and to know with all saints this love of Christ. It's not an idle fancy. It is a glorious possibility. And we should pray unceasingly for ourselves the prayer of Paul for the Ephesians. Until with Daniel Steele and Edward Pace. We can say with utter honesty that we dwell in the land of Beulah and that Christ personally has made known his personal love to us. God willing, we shall continue this subject and theme next Sunday morning. The closing hymn is hymn number 471, 471.
Thou hidden source of calm repose, Thou all-sufficient love divine. 471.
now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.